Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. When they first got married, they decided that they would not have children for at least several years. Then they decided, after a couple of years, that it was time, and they tried. Only they were disappointed. Matter of fact, they kept trying, only to be disappointed over and over again. So finally, they concluded it was an impossible situation. It just wasn't going to happen. He had worked for a large company for several years. Then suddenly, because of a recession in that industry, he was laid off. At first, he thought, this is a simple problem. I've, had, I've qualified. I have experience. It'll be easy to get a job. But after he tried and tried, and tried, he discovered that it wasn't as easy as he thought. The downturn was industry-wide, and after several fruitless and frustrating months of failure, it looked as if it would be impossible for him to find another job in his field before his savings totally ran out. What do you do? When you face an impossible situation, I've described two, there are many, many others. What do you do in that situation? Well, Abraham found himself in that kind of a situation more than once. In going through the book of Genesis, we have seen several of those situations. But there's another one, and it particularly has to do with having a child. And what God said to him in that situation, I think, applies to all of us in every impossible situation. So what I'd like for us to do is see what God said to Abram when he was facing an impossible situation. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. The first couple of verses are sort of an introduction to a rather long chapter. Verse 1 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, let me pause there for just a second. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read it at this point. I'll read it as we go through it. But what I'd like to do is point out that after that introduction, uh, this passage basically falls into two parts. In the first part, the Lord speaks to Abraham. Or at this point, his name is Abram. It's going to be changed in this chapter to Abraham. So... Uh, the verse 1 says, the Lord appeared. That one little sentence is the 
topical sentence for almost the whole chapter, because for almost the whole chapter, God is speaking to Abram. Now drop down and look at verse 23. So Abraham took Ishmael. So this chapter is divided into two parts. In the first part, which is the longest part, God is speaking. In the second part, Abraham, in response to that, does something. So those are the two major parts of the chapter. Now, one other word. I want to take that first very long section and divide just it for a second. Look at verse 4. As for me, God is speaking and says, I want to tell you some things about me. Now drop down to verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you. So he's going to talk about himself, and then he's going to talk about Abraham. Look at verse 15. As for Sarai. So he's going to talk about Sarai. And then, beginning at verse 17, but it's not clear in that verse. It is clear by the time you get to verse 18. He's going to talk about Ishmael. So the first section is God speaking, and he speaks about four different people. The second major section is Abraham responding to what God has said. Now with that overview in mind, let's sort of jog through this passage and unpack it. Verse 1, Abram was 99 years old. Now, back up one verse. Look at chapter 16, verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. In other words, there is a 13-year gap between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. So at this point, he is 99 years old. And the Lord appears to him and says to him, I am Almighty God. So he is revealing himself by giving himself a new name. And this means, I have all power. And that sort of kicks off the theme of this chapter. I want you to know, I have all power. I have the power to do anything I want to do. So he says, walk before me and be blameless. Interesting phrase, walk before me. In the book of Genesis, uh, we are told that Adam walked with God. We're told that Enoch walked with God. And now we are told that Abram is to walk before God. Uh, What's the nuance of meaning here? Well, the idea here seems to be that I want you to walk before me so I can watch what you're doing and approve what you're doing. I want you to walk before me in such a way that you get my favor and approval. And the second part of that is I want you to be blameless. I don't want you to have any faults or flaws based on what I'm telling you. I want you to do it all, and I don't want you to leave any thing out. So God is telling Abram, I want you to know you're facing an impossible situation. 
you haven't had a son yet. I know that. But what I want you to know is that I have all power. And what you are to do is simply walk before me in obedience. That is the point of this chapter. So, the Lord continues. Verse 2, I will make a covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for, you, as for me, uh, behold, my covenant is with you, and you should be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name should be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. All right, several things are going on here. First of all, God says, I will make a covenant between me and you. Now, wait a minute. He already did that. Uh, he made a covenant in chapter 15. But he wants to talk now about making that covenant. And the Hebrew word that's used here seems to imply, I'm now going to put it in force. So it's not that I'm making it from scratch or originally. He's already done that. It's I'm now going to put it in force. And as I do this, I want you to walk before me. I want you to be aware and conscious of who I am in this impossible situation as I put this covenant into force. So he says in verse 3, this covenant between me and you, which he already made in chapter 15, will multiply you exceedingly. Now, in a sense, uh, he's already been told this. Only now, uh, he says in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Now, that hasn't been said before. And... From hindsight, we can look back and see that that's exactly what happened. Uh, a number of nations came out of Abraham's loins. Not just the Israelites, but the Ishmaelites, the Mennonites, and uh, the children of Edom, and others as well. So this literally came true. I'm going to make a king out of you. But what's significant is he changes his name. He says in verse 5, your name shall no longer be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Now verse 4 says, and you should be a father of many nations. Now the question becomes, what's the difference between Abram and Abraham? And the word translated Abram means exalted father. You're going to be an exalted father. Abraham means you're going to be a father of a multitude. So the Lord is emphatically declaring, I am going to fill this covenant I made with you, and you are going to, you're going to have exceedingly great descendants. Kings are going to come out of you. Now, he's already said, your descendants are going to be as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. So he is emphatically declaring, and that will include kings, and I have the power to pull this off. I am almighty. So he continues talking about what he will do. 
Matter of fact, if you look at verse 6, he says, I will make you, verse 7, I will establish my uh, covenant, verse 8, I also give to you and your descendants. This is what God is doing. I will, I will, I will. So he says in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now that sounds like he's going to make a covenant. But he's already made the covenant. So what's he really saying? Well, what he's really saying, as will become clear, is that he's now going to give them a sign of the covenant. But at this point, he's simply emphasizing it's going to be eternal. It's going to be everlasting. This is not a temporary covenant. He says in verse 7, I will establish my covenant, and at the end of the verse, for an everlasting covenant between me and you and all of your descendants. All right, now look at verse 8. I will also give you and your descendants after you a land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now this is new. He has never said, I'm going to, he said before, I'm going to give you this land. He's never called it the land of Canaan. So this is new. He is emphasizing again, I'm going to give you this land, and it's going to be everlasting. All right, so this part of the passage is telling us what God is going to do. He's going to establish his covenant with Abraham and his descendants and give the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants forever. That's what God's going to do. Now, look at what God says to Abraham. Verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Now, it sounds like he's making a covenant of circumcision. But that's not quite the point. He's already made the covenant in chapter 15. This is just an amplification of that. And what he means by I'm going to establish the covenant with you is explained in the next verse, verse 10. This is my covenant, which you should keep between me and you and the descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. So the covenant he's making now is circumcision. And it's not the covenant, it's the sign of the covenant. Verse 11, and you should be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it should be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So the covenant he's talking about here is the covenant he made in chapter 15, and what he is adding to that is the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision in the foreskin. In your flesh means in the foreskin. So the sign is not a tattoo. The sign is not some kind of mark on the body like a piece of jewelry. The sign is nothing less than circumcision, which is very, very interesting. Now, he says this. He who is eight days old, verse 12, among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in his generation who is born in your house or bought 
with money from any foreigner who is not your descendants. So this covenant is going to be, first of all, to every child that is eight days old. Why eight days? What's the significance of that? This, to me, is one of the most fascinating things in all of the Bible. Let me explain to you what happens to a boy baby on day eight. Modern medical science, this is not Bible, this is modern medical science, has concluded that the eighth day of a child's life is the first safe day to perform circumcision. Newborn infants are particularly susceptible to bleeding between the second and fifth day because vitamin K, which is a blood clotting element, is not found in its normal amounts until days five through seven. There's more. There's another element called prothrombin that is also necessary for blood clotting. It is only 30% normal on the third day, but on the eighth day, it skyrockets to better than 110% of normal, and then it levels off at 100% and never gets above that for the rest of the kid's life. So, let me read you uh, what one authority said about this. I think this is really intriguing. Designating the eighth day after verse as the day of circumcision is one of the most amazing specifications in the Bible from a medical point of view. Why the eighth day? At birth, a baby has nutrients, antibodies, and other substance from his mother's blood, including her blood clotting factors. One of them is prothrombone, or bin. Prothrombin is dependent on vitamin K for its production. Vitamin K is produced by intestinal bacteria, which is not present in a newborn baby. After the baby's prothrombin decreases so that by the third day it is only 30% of normal. Circumcision on the third day would have resulted in devastating hemorrhage. The internal bacteria finally starts their task of manufacturing vitamin K and prothrombin, subsequently beginning to climb so that on the eighth day it actually overshoots to 110% of normal, leveling off at 100% on day nine and remaining there for the rest of a person's natural, healthy life. Therefore, the eighth day was the safest of all days for circumcision to be performed. On that one day, a person's clotting factor is at 110%, the highest ever, and that is the day God prescribed for the surgical procedure of circumcision. Now, today, with science, uh, vitamin K is routinely administered to the newborn shortly after birth, and this eliminates that clotting problem. Uh, but, but that's recent. As a matter of fact, before the day of vitamin K injections, 
1953 pediatrics textbook recommended that the best day for circumcision of a newborn was the eighth day of life. Years ago, I knew a doctor, uh, spoke in the church he attended numerous times, and stayed in his home. His testimony was that he attended a liberal, theologically liberal church. And somebody came to his office and led him to Christ. And being a doctor and a scientist, he, in being having a liberal background, he um, questioned, is the Bible accurate? So he said, I started looking at the Bible from the only thing I knew, medicine. And I remember, this was many decades ago, I remember sitting in his home and him telling me about this passage. And he said, one of the things, and there were several, that convinced me that the Bible is the word of God, is that God said circumcise a male child on the eighth day. He said, there is no way they could have known that. That had to be a divine revelation. There is no way. Uh, He's the doctor who said to me, If the Bible says the earth is flat, the earth is flat. We just haven't figured it out yet. And he was on the board of the state university. He was no dummy. He was trying to make a point. This is a fascinating uh, thing that God says you do it on the eighth day. And you do it to all that's born of you and any foreigners that's around. Uh, that you buy. In other words, they could buy slaves in those days. So if they're born or bought, you circumcise them on the eighth day. Now, by the way, does that not imply that Gentiles could get in on this? That's interesting. I think so. All right, let's pick up the story. By the way, hold on a minute. Before I go, there's something else I should mention. There are people who argue that baptism in the New Testament takes the place of circumcision in the Old Testament, and therefore we ought to baptize babies. Uh, My response to that, by the way, is the New Testament never says that, and furthermore, there is not one single solitary example of a baby being baptized in the New Testament. The sign of the New Testament, New Covenant, is what? You're looking at me with a blank stare. The Lord's Supper, not baptism. And there's no baby baptism or infant baptism in the New Testament. I remember once hearing somebody say, if a man flew in from Mars and he didn't know anything about the Bible and he didn't know any theology or church history and you handed him the Bible and said, read it, he would never find a baby being baptized in the Bible. And that is dead right. There are no babies that are baptized in the Bible. It just is not there. All right. So he says in verse 14, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Now earlier he said flesh of your foreskin in verse 11, making very clear exactly what he means. That person should be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. A couple of observations here. Um, Cut off the foreskin, and if you don't, you're going to be cut off. There's a play on words here. The issue is, what does he mean by cut off if you don't practice circumcision? 
And some scholars say it means something like excommunication, and others say it means death. And I'm not exactly sure what it means in this passage, but from studying the Old Testament, I think sometimes it does mean nothing more than excommunication, and sometimes I think it means death. But here, I think it's a play on words. If you don't cut off, you're cut off. That's sort of the idea. One more observation about circumcision. Why circumcision? Of all things, why circumcision? Well, clearly, this has sexual connotations. Isn't that the point of the covenant? I'm going to make a covenant that you are going to have a son, and all your descendants are going to have children, and all those are going to inherit the land. So this is an appropriate sign for that kind of a covenant that demands sexual activity for the propagation of the Jewish people. So that's why he chose circumcision. All right, so far, the Lord is speaking. He has spoken about himself, what he's going to do, and he's spoken about Abraham, what he's going to do to Abraham, but it involves Abraham, so he's speaking about Abraham. Beginning in verse 15, he speaks to Sarai. And the Lord said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So now we're going to change her name. Sarah, Sarai, I should say, meant princess. Sarah has more the idea of nobility or royalty and fits the idea that your kings are going to come out of the offspring of you too. So he says in verse 16, And I will bless her and give her a son, uh, give you a son by her, then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of people shall be from her. Now this is interesting because up until this point, God has said, you are going to have a son. He's never said it was coming from Sarah. Technically, based on what's been said so far, she could die and he could get another wife and that could be from him. Or there was that whole fiasco about Hagar. So no, God says, no, 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 no. It's going to come from your wife. That is the impossible situation because she is way past childbearing age. He's 99, so they're they going to have children. So, uh, he, Abram fell on his face, verse 17, and laughed. Now, that's a problem. Um, why is he laughing? Is he doubting? Is this a laughter of doubt, or is it a laughter of joy? Well, this gets debated, as you can imagine. Uh, I don't think it's a laughter of doubt for several reasons. For one thing, he falls on his face, which is an act of adoration and honor and worship. He's not ridiculing God or doubting God. He's worshiping God. He's tickled to death. That's why he laughed. Also, God does not rebuke him. But uh, finally, my reasoning is that in Romans uh, chapter 4, uh, 
this is the estimate, eliminates any doubt uh, on Abraham's part because it clearly says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul goes into detail in the latter part of chapter 4 to explain, no, Abraham was believing. So, some commentators translate this laughter as joyous amusement. Others, happy wonder or joy and surprise. No less than Calvin captured the spirit of it when he said, not that he either ridiculed the promise of God or treated it as a fable or rejected it altogether, as often happens when things occur which are least expected, partly lifted up with joy, partly carried out of himself with wonder, he burst into laughter. In other words, Calvin is saying he was one happy fellow. So this is the laughter of joy. Spurgeon told of riding home after a heavy day's work, feeling weary and downhearted. Suddenly he says, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 came to his mind. My grace is sufficient for you. When he reached home, he looked it up in the Greek text, and then it hit him. It's saying, my grace is sufficient for you. There's a way to emphasize things in the Greek text. Then he said, I should think it, I should think it is. And I busted out laughing. I never understood that holy laughter of Abraham until then. It seemed to make unbelief absurd. So he's just tickled to death, and he busts out laughing. All right, we're going to have a son by Sarah. Interesting. Royalty. Great. So, in verse... Um, 18, Abram says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And this is the idea, not that he's going to kill him or that he's going to live physically, but that you would bless him. Remember the idea before? We saw that back in verse 1. Well, I don't want to, I, I, okay, we're going to have a son by Sarah, but I don't want you to forget Ishmael. I want you to bless him. So, I'm reading from the New King James. It says in verse 19, Then God said, No, Sarah your wife shall bear you a son. I find that translation very interesting. Uh, the, the original King James leaves out the word no, and I think that's the preferred translation. God is simply saying, let me reiterate, Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, for an everlasting covenant, and with all his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. Answering, would you have let him live before you? Yes. And will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall begat twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at a set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So, God is saying, look, I will bless Ishmael, but I am making a covenant with you. You are going to 
do something that is humanly impossible, you are going to have a son by Sarah, and you're going to do it a year from now when you're 100 years old, and I want you to name that son Isaac. It can't get any more specific than that. And then the Lord ascended. He just went up from there, sort of to prove what's going on. Now, this is at the end of God speaking. So let me summarize what's going on before I finish the rest of the passage. One expositor has figured out that there are six uh, particulars that God gives in this passage. When God is speaking about himself, Abraham, Sarah, and Ishmael. Number one. God's part of the blessing would depend on Abraham's maintaining a covenant of circumcision, though the Abrahamic covenant as a whole did not depend on that. Two, many nations would come from him. Three, the Abrahamic covenant would be eternal. Four, God would be a God of Abraham's descendants in a special relationship. Five, Sarah would bear the personal be, uh, would bear his personal heir. Six. This is also the first time God identifies the promised land as Canaan by name. And I would add to that, and God says, I'm going to take care of Ishmael. Do not worry about that. By the way, just uh, in the context of Ishmael and a chapter dealing with circumcision, Arabs, descendants of Ishmael, practice circumcision, only they don't do it on the eighth day. They do it when the boy is 13 years old, which I thought was interesting. But God says, I'm going to bless Ishmael, meaning that out of him are going to come a multitude of people, and that, of course, is exactly what has happened. So, the passage says, Abraham took Ishmael his son, all that were born in his house, and all that were brought with the money, every male of the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin, I'm in verse 23, the very same day as God said to him. Abram was 99 years old when he, circumcised, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael's son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That same day, Abram was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house, or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So, this passage is simply telling us, after God spoke and gave him the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, meaning every male, whether bought or born, and he was circumcised that day. Everybody, all males. Now, you know what that meant? That meant that Abraham's household was left unprotected. If somebody attacked them, there was nobody to defend them. He was now vulnerable. So, they're incapacitated when they get circumcised. There's no protection, which means that Abraham obeyed, but that was an act of faith. 
Think about that. Obedience requires faith. And he says he's going to bless Ishmael physically, and he got circumcised. There's a spiritual blessing, as Paul talks about in the book of Romans. So, the sum of this chapter is really rather simple. A lot of details, but the sum is simple. When the all-powerful God promised to do what seemingly was impossible and gave Abraham a command, circumcision, Abraham immediately and completely obeyed. So what is the point of the passage for us? Just that. That God makes a covenant with us, and what we are to do, even when facing impossible situations, is just to believing and to trusting. So what God does in this passage is he confirms his covenant. The covenant, which is given in chapter 15, is unilateral. That means it's one-sided. He makes a covenant with Abraham while he was asleep. Remember that? Here, Abraham hears the reaffirmation of it, and in this case, he receives it in silence and submission. The covenant is unconditional and does not depend on the cooperation of Abram or his descendants, nor does any failure or flaw or forgetfulness on their part nullify the covenant. So I want to emphasize the covenant is not dependent upon circumcision, the covenant as a whole. In other words, God said, I made a covenant, it's solely dependent on me, I am giving Abraham and his descendants the land called Canaan, and I'm giving it to them forever. Now, within that covenant, an individual person's participation in it is dependent on their, their faith and obedience to it. So the covenant stands. It's unconditional. But from Abraham's point of view, the covenant, at least... Uh, at this point in time, was impossible because Sarah was past childbearing age. What was he to do? In that situation, God reaffirmed his promise, gave him a sign, and gave him a timetable. One year from now, you're going to have a son. So Abraham was to look to the Lord to do the impossible. He was to trust him. He was to obey him to wait for the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to him. Now hear me, and hear me well. Back up in verse 1. I am the almighty God. I have all the power to do anything I command you to do. I have all the power to do anything I said I would do. So, in an impossible situation, our job is to trust God and obey what he told us to do and wait for him to work. Now, somebody may object that in this passage, Abraham could do that because God made a specific promise in that case, and he was not necessarily done so in our case. There's a sense in which that's true. 
However, we need to walk before Almighty God because he has promised to provide our needs. Remember that verse? Matthew chapter 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So we haven't been given the specific promise for our land or a son, but God has given us promises. And those promises are unconditional, but we have to trust him and obey him to participate in them. So we need to walk before an almighty God who has the power to work in impossible situations. Now, that ties this whole chapter together. It starts out, I am the almighty God. You are in an impossible situation. Here's what I want you to do. And Abraham did it immediately. But don't just see the obedience that took faith. And so he trusted the Lord, obeyed the Lord, and we will see what happens as we continue the study of the book of Genesis. But in the meantime, God is powerful enough to do what he promised, even if it seems impossible. And that's what I want you to put in your pocket and walk out of here with. The Almighty God has power to do what he promises to do. Got that? Put it in your purse, put it in your wallet, and keep it there. Wouldn't hurt to put it in the front of your brain either. God has the power to perform any promise he has ever given. And that's the lesson he gave Abraham on this occasion. On the letterhead, of a well-known Chinese evangelist named Leland Wong were three verses from the Bible. The first was, The sun stood still, Joshua 10, 13. The second was, The iron did swim, 2 Kings 6, 6. Now those are two of the most impossible, improbable situations imaginable. The sun standing still, an axe head floating. Are you kidding me? Those were the first two. And the third was, this God is our God. Psalm 48, verse 14. Amen. He's putting those three sentences on his letterhead by affirming that God does the impossible. He floats axe heads. He gives women past childbearing age a baby, and he can even stop the sun. Trust him. He's trustworthy. Father, thank you for this lesson. May the Spirit of God impress it upon our hearts so that we not doubt you when you tell us to trust you, to love the unlovely, to be kind to these who are not kind, to walk before you, to seek your approval and your favor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.